Let's just uh, begin with a word of prayer. And the Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to each and every one of us. We ask now that as we come and open your word, that you'd be present by your Spirit. That you'd equip me to explain clearly as I ought. And that you'd bring about change in each and every one of us for your glory. Amen. Adam Rickwood, 14. Wayne Williams, 28. Private Mark Dobson, 41. Christian Drain, 21. Nikki Dunbar, 17. Just a, a handful of names of Britons who have taken their lives in recent years as a result of sorrow, despair, harassment, shame, and neglect. To mum and anyone that cares. I've done something I can never forgive myself for. I'm a bad person. I'm sorry. I love you. Unfortunately, the game has got the better of me. Give my apologies to all the lads. I've done it because I'm so unhappy. Quotations from three different suicide notes. All situations of utter hopelessness. It's been said, while there is life, there is hope. If hope dies, what life can remain? I'm sorry if this is a sensitive subject for you. I certainly don't mean to open old wounds and cause further hurt. Um, it's been an emotive experience for me in preparation. We live in a world that is waning in hopeless despair, where people are so convinced of the hopelessness of their situation that they feel that the only answer is to end it all. One of the things that struck me as I read each tragic story was how much each individual had to live for. Loving families well-paying, meaningful jobs, material prosperity, and yet, in their own eyes, they had reached rock bottom. What is the point of life? What is the meaning of our existence? On what foundation do we build our hopes? If we're lucky, we have maybe 70 years of life to find the answer, but most Never do. Probably because they're looking in the wrong place. Sex. 
money, job, families. Or they've become so disillusioned that they've given up altogether. What is the point? What hope do we have? A cynic would say that the light at the end of the tunnel is a train headed straight for you. Is there light at the end of the tunnel? Is there hope for the hopeless? I believe there is, and the Bible shows us what it is. Will you turn to 1 Peter chapter 1? We're going to read these verses together. It's verses 3 to 5. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's on page 1217. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. Christian hope is anchored in the past. I don't want to dwell on the the hopelessness side of things. Uh, What's in focus here is Christian hope. We have a hope. Christian hope is anchored in the past. It isn't an airy-fairy positive mental attitude. It is a reality. I began by kind of talking about the foundation on which we build our hopes. There's no surer foundation. Our author Peter knew firsthand the experience of hopelessness. His hopes died with Jesus on the cross. This man that he had followed around, who he had given up everything for, for uh, around about three years. And his threefold denial added shame and guilt to hopeless despair. But hope was reborn in Peter through seeing the risen Lord Jesus. Peter, his hope is in Christ. Christ's resurrection spells hope for us, not because, just because he lives, but because by God's mercy, we live. New birth with God as our Father. Praising God is a familiar concept throughout the Bible. Peter begins his letter by echoing that concept and changing it to praise God with a name he hadn't previously revealed in the Old Testament. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praising God is a helpful remedy for hearts weighed down in hopelessness and despair. As countless Christians will testify. I wonder if that's your experience this evening. Let's consider some of the reasons that Peter gives for praising God. And as such, reasons why we can praise God. Firstly, God should be praised for his rich mercy. In Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, we read, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. The Bible paints an even bleaker picture than we'd first thought. It's not only that life is hopeless, there isn't any life in the first place. We are all born spiritually dead in sin. 
But God, in his mercy, has dealt with the root of our problem, our total wickedness, our sinful nature, our hopelessness, by sending Jesus, who was himself God, to live as a man, to die as the sacrifice for all mankind, and by his shed blood, to make a way by which we can do what we were designed to do, what we were made to do, to live in a right relationship with our Creator God. God should be praised for His rich mercy. Secondly, God should be praised for giving us new birth. Through faith in Christ, God in His rich mercy has given us new birth. While previously we were spiritually dead, now through Jesus we've been reborn or recreated. Thirdly, God should be praised for giving us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. When it comes to religion, there's a lot of choices out there. It's like a religious supermarket. There's different belief systems, some organized, some disorganized. There are different prophets or messiah figures. But the fundamental, the one fundamental difference between them and Jesus Christ is death. People, whether prophets or messiahs or otherwise, have a tendency to die and to stay dead. But not so with Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is the keystone doctrine to the Christian faith. If you take that away, the whole thing, like a tower, comes crumbling down. Paul, in one of his letters to the Corinthian church, writes, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. If Jesus' resurrection is a lie, we might as well pack up and go home now. End the sermon early. Uh, Let's see what's on the telly. Why is the resurrection so important? Well, time and again, Jesus told his followers that he would die and that three days later he would rise to life. Was Jesus a liar? No. The resurrection proves that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has power over life and death, and that because Jesus rose, we have that assurance that we also will be raised. We don't have time to go into all the evidence for the resurrection, but there's a number of books that have been written on the subject, and there's plenty of good sermons that you can download about it. Suffice to say, the evidence is overwhelming. It supports the reality... That firstly, Jesus indeed died. That secondly, Jesus rose to life. As fantastic as it sounds, and is, it's the rational explanation. God is merciful. He gives us new birth and a hope that is like the risen Lord Jesus himself. Like the word of God, living. Because it's living, it grows and becomes more beautiful as time goes on. Let me ask you at this stage, do you have that hope? Do you have that assurance that comes from being accepted unconditionally into God's family by faith in Jesus? Have you experienced that new birth? You know that no matter who you are or what you've done, there's always, always light at the end of the tunnel. That light is the light of life, the Lord Jesus Christ.
know that you are dearly loved by a God who is not distant or disinterested, as some would have you believe, but He's present and attentive. He's interested in you. He has Himself endured suffering in all its fullness and yet emerged victorious. Christian hope is anchored in the past. It's also maintained in the present. In August last year, New York hotelier and real estate billionaire Leona Helmsley died. She and her late husband built a company which managed some of New York's most prestigious addresses, including the Empire State Building and various hotels throughout the United States. What made her story particularly newsworthy was the fact that it was her dog, Trouble, who you can see in the picture there, who received the greatest inheritance, $12 million, just short of £6 million, even more than any of her human relatives. I think her brother, her brother, received $10 million, less than the dog. Well, the Old Testament talks often about Israel's inheritance as the promised land of Canaan, or the portion or share of that land that would belong to each tribe or family. In the New Testament, however, our inheritance relates to a believer's share in the heavenly kingdom, his or her future heavenly reward. And here, Peter is reminding believers of that inheritance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Verse 4. He's given us living hope. And as those given birth by God, we also receive an inheritance from God. God maintains our hope, our inheritance. It's kept for us, and we are kept for it. We are children of the King. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, Romans eight seventeen says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. As Peter describes our inheritance, he makes several comparisons between Israel's earthly inheritance and our heavenly inheritance. Notice the way that he describes it. Firstly, it is an imperishable inheritance. It's easy, isn't it, to envy the prosperity, the property, perhaps, and the financial security of others. We live in a culture that is materially driven, and practically everything becomes the latest must-have item. We look for fulfillment, and meaning in the latest gadget or fashion trend and they're superseded by something else in no time at all. So easily we trust in things but the Bible says that that trust is misplaced. All earthly possessions will ultimately decay. It's just a matter of time. But Peter says nothing can ruin our inheritance. It's an imperishable inheritance. The word he uses there is only ever used to describe heavenly realities. God himself, for example. God's word. And our resurrection bodies. While Israel's inheritance was laid to waste by this army and that. The ultimate fulfillment of God's promise, our heavenly inheritance, inheritance is not subject to decay. 
It's an imperishable inheritance. It's secondly, an unspoilt inheritance, or unpolluted by sin. Again, to draw another comparison with the Old Covenant, in the prophecy of Jeremiah, we, we read God saying, I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. Jeremiah 2.7 The land of Israel's inheritance was defiled, firstly by invading forces, but also by Israel's idolatry. They're chasing after perishable things. In total contrast, our inheritance is undefiled, and in fact, undefilable. So it's imperishable, it's unspoiled, it's also an unfading inheritance. Canaan was not only ravaged by invaders and polluted by its inhabitants, it was also parched with drought by God's judgment. In contrast, our earthly inheritance will never wither or dry up, grow dim or lose its beauty or glory. And fourthly, it's kept safely in heaven by God for his people. It's already prepared. It's ready and it's waiting. Israel's earthly inheritance was not kept for them, but was taken from them in the exile and later by the Roman occupation. So talking about our inheritance, uh, commentator, theologian Wayne Grudem helpfully summarizes. The inheritance of the new covenant Christian is thus shown to be far superior to the earthly inheritance of the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. Even while they possessed the land, it produced rewards that decayed. Rewards whose glory faded away. The beauty of the land's holiness was repeatedly defiled by sin. What does this mean for us in practice? What, What application can we draw from this? Brothers and sisters, in light of our inheritance, as members of God's family, we should live as members of God's kingdom. Not as the son in the parable that Jesus told, who took his father's inheritance and squandered it, but as the son who is faithful to his God and his father. We are co-heirs with Christ, and we should be faithful in the same measure. Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24 reads, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Obviously, the original context, if you look that up in your Bible, you'll see is the relationship between servants and masters. But is it not just as applicable to us? After all, it's the same Lord And it's the same inheritance. Many of you will know I spent um, a summer in the States in 2002 with an organization or sent by an organization called the Herald's Trust. I was working in a couple of different Christian camps in Wisconsin in the United States. And these verses uh, took on new meaning for me. God really spoke to me through these verses. Uh, And I 
share that with you just now for your encouragement. I, when I arrived there, I was all excited, I was all on fire, ready to serve God, ready to win young people for the, for the Lord. Uh, had all these kind of perhaps delusions of grandeur. And when I arrived there, do you know the very first thing I was doing? Phantom Ranch. I was sweeping floors in the canteen. 3,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean to sweep floors in the canteen. I was thinking, God, what are you playing at? Is this all you have in store for me? Sweeping floors. That week, uh, these verses were, were uh, part of the, the teaching program. It's part of that week. And you know, it just kind of clicked with me. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. Do you know what? From that moment on, I was sweeping those floors for Jesus. And they were mighty clean, I'll tell you that too. Just an aside, I wasn't sweeping floors the whole summer. We're singing a couple of songs um, in the run-up to, to the sermon this, this evening. Um, I want to thank the Focus for the song that they sang. Uh, some people, it would be very new to uh, a lot of you. But did you notice the words? I remember when I was starting off in YPM, somebody saying to me, you've got to pay attention to what the words say. It's no good just to sing. I'll share that with you again, just as another aside. Uh, let, read these words, listen to them. Every day it's you I live for. Can you honestly say that's the truth? It's okay to, to sing that. Um, but it means something else to put that into practice. Every day it's you I live for. That has implications. Are there areas in your life where you're happy to idle away? Squandering your, your time and your energy? Let this gentle rebuke from God's word change your attitude. For it's the Lord Christ you're serving. So our hope is rooted in the past, firmly anchored through Jesus' resurrection. Through faith in Jesus, we're adopted into God's family as his children. And we have the assurance of an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Finally, Christian hope is completed in the future. It's completed in the future. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. As children of God, we need to remember that we are first and foremost citizens of heaven. If you've got your Bible open there, have a look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Very first verse in the book. It says we are strangers... In the world, we're pilgrims or wanderers awaiting our future home. Like the Israelites waiting to take possession of the land of Canaan, we too are waiting for our heavenly inheritance, the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Our salvation, we've said, is already accomplished. It's rooted in the past when Christ rose in victory from death. In the present, we trust in Jesus and are adopted into God's family, receiving a down payment until that future day when we receive the full uh, and complete salvation. In another New Testament letter, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. 
And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. The Holy Spirit is our down payment. Until he returns, Christ sends his Spirit to live within believers. We have that Holy Spirit living in us just now. And notice that until that day, we have assurance of strength in the face of suffering. People have drawn many conclusions about the main theme of the book of 1 Peter. Undeniable, though, is its emphasis on suffering. Peter is writing to a church that is enduring immense persecutions, as in fact Jesus told us would happen. In Mark 13, verse 13, We read, all men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. In the book of Acts that we've been studying as a church, we see many infrequent examples of persecution in the early church. The nature and type of persecution varied, but one stark example that history records is the death of thousands of Christians at the hands of the Roman emperor Nero, who used them as a scapegoat for the fire of Rome in AD 64. In fact, through Nero, I believe both Peter and Paul lost their lives. Christians are not excused suffering, but the encouragement of Peter to the early church is the same encouragement to believers today. We are shielded through faith. The word shielded could be substituted as guarded, kept safe, carefully watched, It's a military tense. Believers, we're not kept by our own power, but by God's power. Hope, disappointed, is a terrible thing. Have you ever arrived at a hotel or a restaurant to find that the reservations that you've carefully made have been confused or cancelled? Or perhaps you've had uh, the promise of a trip of a lifetime that never quite happened. Christians can be assured that there's going to be no mix-up in heaven. Our future home and our inheritance are reserved and guaranteed. Salvation is the full future possession of all the blessings of our redemption. The final complete fulfillment of our salvation. The believer is already saved through faith in Christ. For it is by grace you have been saved, says Paul, through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. But the completion of that salvation awaits the return of the King. Then we'll have new resurrection bodies. And we'll live in a new environment, the heavenly city. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. In his mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope and into an inheritance that is ready and waiting. Like any inheritance, it comes upon us a significant event, usually death. Likewise, our heavenly inheritance will come one day either when 
He calls us to himself or upon the most significant of events. That day when our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, returns in glory. Those of you that were out this morning, uh, Nick Blair spoke wonderfully about um, our eternal hope. All that returns, I uh, asked his permission to share this uh, illustration with you. This is not all there is. Like the acorn, this is just the start of it. The real glory is yet to come. What a hope for the hopeless. I began by reflecting on the tragic suicides of a handful of Britons. Another thing that struck me as I read each story was that a significant number of these deaths, in those deaths, in the stories, those closest to the individuals didn't even know anything was wrong. We're very good, aren't we, at masking our emotions, hiding our feelings, dare I say, especially in church. Perhaps there are some here who are caught in the suffocating grip of hopelessness. Well, some of these flyers arrived in the church office this week. Uh, The cover attracted my attention. As I was chatting with Colin about the service, he reminded me that we don't believe in coincidences. Well, these will be available. They'll be given to you on the way out, each of the stairs. Uh, I encourage you to take that away this evening. Perhaps you'd find it encouraging. Perhaps you will find it useful in encouraging somebody that you know. Or maybe it's worthwhile just keeping in your Bible uh, for use in the future. Sadly, there are a whole host of stories out there that are equally tragic and even more so. Individuals experiencing utter hopelessness. But there are also stories of great joy and encouragement. And let me just finish with this one. From infancy, I was ravaged by abuse. Physical, sexual, emotional and spiritual. I had lost all hope and lived each day on survival mode. By age 18, uh, pain and fear overwhelmed me. I'd been watching people around me to see if anyone had any answers, but no one did. So finally, I decided on suicide and planned my death. As a last-ditch effort, I called the crisis helpline. A kind stranger got me in touch with a group called Teen Challenge. And two weeks later, I began to go to their meetings. I gave God permission to help me. He accepted me where I was and began to pour out his love to me. My life changed dramatically for the better. A daylight from darkness difference. And I fell in love with Jesus Christ. In the eyes of the world, I was a total loser. A wreck. But God chose me. And overcome everything, even my own self-destructiveness, to give me his love and a new life. Words are too limited to express accurately God's greatness, compassion, and creativity. I am loved. I have a future and a hope. Let's pray.